Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, please, that you might bless our time uh, in the Word, that you would help us think uh, your thoughts. Please help us be transformed by your Word, changed to be more like Christ. Help me speak truth. Help us focus well. And we pray that all we do might honour and please you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, being here uh, week on, week out is... uh, it's it's kind of it's sad and so really sorry that we can't be together um, and pray as we have that uh, the Lord might bring a quicker end that we can be back together it's so critical that we gather physically together but here we are in chapter two of the great love story which is more than a love story do you remember from last week uh, my hope is um, that all of you are kind of right in the thick of this whole Ruth series and so you're just waiting for the next podcast to drop do you know what I mean the next episode to land and I hope that's the case for you as we go along week by week it's a great story and it's carefully written you know I don't know what you did how you found English at school and so on but let me just uh, show you some ways this author puts things together we touched on it last week the end of chapter one do you remember those words about being in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning uh, do you remember those words actually the quick recap uh, what we've got here in chapter one is the story of a woman Naomi whose husband takes the whole family off into a place called Moab uh, with two sons the sons marry there but then die and uh, her husband dies and so she's alone with two foreign women two Moabite women but she comes back to Bethlehem and as she comes back to Bethlehem she comes back uh, in the complete pit of despair and the very end of chapter one she talks about verse 21 going away full but the Lord has brought me back empty here she is there's no hope there's no future it's bleak it's dark she can't see anything in the front of her But the writer tells us that she's arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Watch this space, says the writer. As God is filling the buckets, she's going to, God will fill the bucket of Naomi. It's a great way of telling the story. It's a great story. But of course, it isn't in the Bible just because it's a good story. Uh, it's in the it's God has inspired someone to tell us about this particular set of events this family in the time of judges uh, so that we might learn from it that's the whole point and I suggested last week one of the big lessons that we gain from this book is that uh, God what he is like and what it what it looks like for him to work in people's lives what, what does it look like to be in relationship with this God the God of the Bible uh, What does it look like for ordinary people uh, who can't earn their way, make their way? What does it look like for people like us to be in relationship with this God? People like Naomi, who was no hero of the faith. That's the big one. But alongside that, there are other lessons, secondary lessons. They're not the big thing, but important lessons. And I want to suggest as we come into chapter two, you actually get an intensification of some of the main big lessons through the book. The lessons about women and men, Uh, what it is to be a great woman and what it is to be a real man. These particularly become strong as we go through these chapters, chapter two. And so here's the plan tonight. Uh, like last week, we'll go through the story, follow the events, and then pull it all together at the end. I've got two big things I want to draw your attention to at the end uh, of tonight. 
But before we kind of launch in, so just I, I want to frustrate us a little bit. Chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to get to it in a second. But let me just give you a quick bit of background before we land in verse 1. Two things. First one is marriage in the ancient world. If a woman's husband dies and she ends up a widow, then in Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 25, you can chase it up actually, a close relative of her dead husband is to come in and marry her. Now, I know lots of women freak out at that thought and lots of men as well. I might say lots of brothers of married men. Um, I mean, you don't just think uh, when you're chasing some bloke what his brother might be like because it's, you don't even want to think about that. You don't want to go there. But in Israel, it was a thing. And lots of other nations in the ancient world as well. And it was an important thing. And here's why. It was a way of caring for women. Now, I, I know you kind of go, how is that the case? Well, here it is. If a woman's husband dies, she ends up with his property and his name. But if she doesn't have kids, when she dies, it'll all be lost. The family won't continue to have the property and the name. So someone needs to step in and marry her to provide for her, to protect, to give her a child to carry the family name on, the name of her husband and uh, her life, that the property can stay in the family. So it was an important piece of ancient culture that was helpful. Now just take care here. Don't, don't read ancient cultures through the lens of Hollywood through the lens of popular ways of thinking about things. Um, in that time, in that context, it was an act of great care for women and it worked. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I wouldn't need it. Uh, it's degrading. Uh, I would just take charge, make way. I'm woman, I'm strong, I'm invincible. Uh, I just encourage you to pause and think a bit more about that one. In the ancient world where there was no rule, there was no law, there was no stable government, the Wild West, it was a tough place. There's the first one, marriage. You need to know about this particular thing from Deuteronomy 25. Second one is harvesting and the poor. God's concern is for the weak. It's for the poor. And so he set in place a bunch of laws in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus chapter 23 to provide care for the poor of the land. And the way he set it up was that landowners, when they reap the harvest, were to leave bits of it behind so that poor people can come along and pick up the leftovers. It was kind of a work for the doll scheme in the ancient world. It's very clever. Uh, the landowner, of course, had to carry the cost. Now, that's important to bear in mind. So two pieces, marriage laws, Deuteronomy 25, and uh, care for the poor, uh, leaving behind uh, bits of crop and so on. And there's two things. Now, let's jump in. Have a look at verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Remember that name. What we're going to see here, a very clever writer again at work, we're going to see Boaz in action in a moment, but the author wants us to be ready for him when he comes to know what we're looking at when we see Boaz arrive. Ruth didn't know, but this man Boaz is a good man, and he's in the family of Ruth's dead husband because he's in the family of his mother, husband. And so he's a man of standing, wealthy and powerful, and he could just be the one that's right for Ruth. And the author wants us to know this is the case before the story unfolds. Verse 2. 
Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone who's in whose eyes I find favour. Now notice this, Ruth suggests the idea. She takes the initiative. Naomi doesn't. And Naomi doesn't actually go to do the work. We're not sure why. Is it possible that she's too old? Unlikely. I think it's more likely she's just depressed. She can't get up and get out. But Ruth can. And she has to go, let me go, she said, into the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favour. She can't just go to any field because it has to be a field where the landowner obeys the laws of Moses for the poor. He has to be favourably disposed to poor people coming along and taking his grain. It has to be a particular kind of man. And verse 3, here's where it gets awesome. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. She went out, enters a field, begins to field, to, to glean. She must have seen other women, it seems, who are also gleaning in this field. And as it turned out. Now underline that little phrase. I love it. It's a great one. As it turned out. It was the field belonging to Boaz. A man from her clan who was qualified to be the one who could marry her. Now, Boaz doesn't know that, but we've been told by the author that this is the case. As it turned out, literally, as chance chanced it. We might say, as luck would have it. As it turned out, she just happened to go to this field where Boaz was the owner of all the fields, of all the owners. It just happened to be this one. Now, this is awesome. I mean, how do you think it happened that chance chanced like this? How do you think it happened that she happened to be in this field with this man? Do you believe in luck? No. The world is not ruled by fate, by blind chance, but by the Lord Almighty, the Lord of loving kindness. We'll come back to that. And just then, verse 4, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. Just at that moment, he probably didn't come to his fields often, but just at that moment he does, when Ruth is there. And he greets the harvesters, the Lord be with you. He uses the personal name of the Lord Yahweh, capital Lord, all in capitals. And the first words he speaks are this blessing, which tells you something. The writer is actually trying to draw your attention to that. This is the kind of man that when he speaks, the first thing he speaks is the Lord's blessing. He's concerned to be faithful to the Lord and faithful to others. This man's not just a relative, he's not just of standing, he's godly. And verse 5, he notices Ruth. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvest, who does that young woman belong to? Now don't overread this. You know, it's, it, it's kind of tempting to think this is uh, Boaz checking her out or something like this. No, 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 no. Bo Boaz is an older man. Ruth's quite young, it seems. And from the rest of the story, we know that he's quite a man of quite in character, integrity and so on. He, he's not got designs. He's just, he's concerned for her. 
He notices, and his question tells us something about Boaz. Who does that young woman belong to? Is Boaz saying, is there someone providing for her? It's the days of the judges. Here's someone alone, a stranger and new. Is there someone watching out for her? Well, the answer comes, verse 6, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Just notice how often Moab's mentioned. In fact, all the way through the book, just notice how often Ruth, we're told, is a Moabite. She's the Moabite from Moab. And if you're with us last week, you'll remember that Moab's an important, a significant piece in all of this. Moab was hostile towards Israel and Israel's God. And, and to have gone to Moab's bad, to have brought back a woman from Moab's bad, because they're the enemy. They're dangerous. Numbers 25 talks about the danger of the Moabite women. They have a very sordid history. She's a Moabite woman. But, verse 7, she's worked hard. She's remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the, in the shelter. Now, this thing happens. An extraordinary thing happens. Verse 8, Boaz says to her, Don't go and glean in another's field. Don't go away from here. Notice the repetition. Stay here, repeating it again, with the women and work for me, repeating it again and again. Um, now, again, in all of this, it's not Boaz captured by this woman and some romance. He's just concerned for her, deeply concerned for her, which pushes a question, a very important question, why? Why is Boaz so concerned for Ruth? And he's very concerned for her. He tells the men not to harm her. Uh, verse 9, I've told the men not to lay a hand on you and whenever you get thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. And more than that, uh, he invites her to sit with him at his table at mealtime. Uh, verse 14, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And he gave her all that she wanted to eat so that she even had leftovers from that meal. So Why? Why is Boaz so concerned? Now, notice the astonishing thing that this is, actually. Boaz is a man of great standing, an Israelite. Ruth's a Moabite. She's a foreigner, an alien, a refugee of no standing. Why is Boaz concerned for her? Someone most people would have despised. Why? Now, verse 10, she asks the question, why? She bowed down with the face to the ground. She said, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Why? I'm going to give you two reasons. One mentioned, one not. I suggest to you one of the reasons that Boaz is concerned for uh, Ruth is because from Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, Rahab is his mother. Now, if you know anything about Bible history, Rahab was a prostitute who was not an Israelite, who converted to the Israelite faith to their God and became part of the family tree of David and Jesus, Rahab. Now, Rahab's Boaz's mother or grandmother, um, which means Boaz has been raised by a woman who knows what it is to be alone, to be an alien. 
And that has had a new, huge impact, I dare say, on Boaz. Come back to that as well. But there is an answer that Boaz himself gives. Look at verse 11. I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. The reason Boaz gives is because he's heard of what Ruth has done. He's touched by it, moved by her sacrificial love of her mother-in-law at a great cost to herself. Ruth, do you remember, in chapter 1, has attached herself to her mother-in-law, even though she knew she'd have no future and no hope. And verse 12, he says, May the Lord repay you for what you've done. What you've done is an extraordinary thing, Ruth. I've heard about it. People are talking about it. Chapter 3, you'll see this as well. He's touched by what she's done, moved by her sacrificial. And he's aware further that in doing all of that, attaching herself to Naomi... She has risked everything to now trust God, the God of Israel. She has left behind her pagan Moabite gods and their protection and come in under the protection of Israel's God. Boaz is very aware of this. Look, verse 12, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded, rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Underline that. Critical. That Ruth, in committing to Naomi, has also committed to Naomi's God, the God of Israel, and has come in under the wings of the God of Israel to take refuge with him. Ruth has given up everything to serve Naomi and her God. And Boaz sees what she's truly done. She has put herself in the hands of Yahweh, the God of Israel. She's left everything, trusting that God, the God of Israel, would care for her. That is a huge risk. Now remember, what's the message of this book? What's the big thing about this book? It's what it's like to have God in your life, what God is like, what it is to be ordinary people under this God. Can you trust him? If you take refuge in this God, under the wings of this God, can you trust him? If you give up seeking your own safety and your own protection to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, will you be okay? If I give up pursuing making my life the best it can by my efforts seek the whole world and deny myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus, will it be worth it? If you obey this God at cost to self, will he provide? The answer this book gives is absolutely. Whatever you've sacrificed, to come in under the wings of this God, he will repay you. And if not here in this life, in glory, 
in such a way that every experience of suffering and grief now will be pale and insignificant. You know, the upshot of Boaz's care is that Ruth goes home loaded with food, bags of shopping, 30 kilos or so. It's massive. And she's got pockets full of leftovers from lunch. And I don't doubt that she kind of walks in the door with Naomi there and lands it on the bench top. And she, Naomi goes, jaw hits the ground and says, where have you been? Um, verse 19, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Ruth says, the man's name I worked with was Boaz. The Lord bless him, says Naomi. And in this, Naomi then says, oh, and there's also, and pulls out a whole bunch of stuff from lunch that day. Boaz has not just done his duty. He has abundantly poured blessing on Ruth and so into Naomi's life. There's a shift now that happens, verse 20. Naomi says, He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Now what is that? He has not stopped showing his kindness. Who is the he? Who is the he in verse 20? Who has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead? I mean, the initial instinct is to imagine it's Boaz, isn't it? Well, Boaz has only been showing kindness for one day. So it's hard to see how he might have not stopped giving kindness. She's thrilled by Boaz. But I'd suggest the he that she's referring to is God. Now remember, this is Naomi. She's been depressed. She's come back to Bethlehem with nothing, empty, with bitterness. And the Lord Almighty has brought affliction into my life. But something's now happened. So that verse 20, she realises that that same God, who was sovereign over all her affairs, hasn't actually ever stopped showing kindness into, his, into her life. It's an extraordinary thing that her head begins to come up. And I'd offer for us that whatever you're going through, it will pass one day. You will be able again to see God's hand in your life. Tragedy and disaster often cramps you down. It's hard to see the blessings in the midst of the pain, but it will pass. In the midst of all of that disaster and grief, cast all your anxiety on him because he does care for you. The one in, under whose wings you have come to take refuge is the God of great blessing. Preach this sermon to yourself regularly. Cast my cares upon him because he cares for me. This too will pass. The Lord will never stop showing goodness to you. And so the chapter ends. Verse 23, Ruth stays close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, some months but perhaps, and she lived with a mother-in-law. Final sentence. What an odd way to finish the chapter. But again, this writer is incredibly clever. And I don't know what you think about mothers-in-law. Um, you know, I love my mother-in-law. I've mentioned this last week. But uh, uh, do, do you know that Ruth is still living with her mother-in-law produces a sense of tension in this whole account. She's still there. Boaz is waiting. Boaz doesn't know it yet, but Naomi does. 
She's worked out who he is. Verse 20, he's one of our guardian redeemers. There's more to come next week. But let me pull this together for us. Do you remember two big things? Let's finish on those two big things. And uh, um, if we've got a, we've got a question and answer time. To, yep. So we'll, we'll have a Q&A at the end of all of this. And hopefully that will uh, pick up some things as well. But let me pull this together a couple of things. Let's start with, well, is it the more controversial one? I don't know. Let's, let's start with a very contemporary one of men and women, women and men. What do we learn? The book is designed to show us something about the key characters, about Ruth and Boaz. Now, chapter one was very heavily focused on Ruth. And so we paid some attention, a lot of attention last week to women, particularly in that context. The second chapter is more focused on Boaz. But again, Ruth is there and it's important to notice this. What do you learn about women here? And what I want to say to you, uh, what you learn is this, um, how to be a great woman. How to be a great woman. Ruth, she is very impressive. She loves with a, with a kind of love that is faithful and loyal and committed. She loves with a committed love, a faithful and loyal love. A tender concern for her mother law at cost to herself. Hesed love, we talked about it last week. And she's active. She takes the initiative. It is tempting, it would have been tempting for her to become quite passive. The history of pain that she's gone through. She's lost her husband, she's lost her family, she's left into a foreign country. She's with a mother that's mother-in-law that's depressed. Very easily in all of that climate to become herself passive and depressed. But Ruth. Ruth steps up in it and she's the one that initiates going out and solving the problem for the family. She steps up and goes and gets food. And when she does that, she works hard at it. She works from morning till night. Ruth is no fragile, stay at home, it's too hard to do anything kind of woman. She's a woman and she is strong. And humble. She's a woman of faith. She's prepared to come in under the wings of Israel's God and trust him. And verse 10, when Boaz shows favour, she's humble enough to gratefully receive it. You know, there's a danger, I think, of a kind of insecure pride amongst men and women, but women particularly, that bristles at any kind of help that others might give. There is a kind of an unfortunate uh, aggressive feminism today that um, creates in women a kind of uh, uh, any help that's given is a patronising. And Ruth is not like that. Ruth has the humility to receive with gratitude any helps that come. She's strong, she initiates, she works hard and humble enough to receive help gladly. She is the Proverbs 31 woman. The woman who works hard and is diligent and successful. Um, she's a woman of uh, noble character, clothed with strength and dignity. I want you to keep noticing the picture of womanhood the Bible paints. You don't need to learn about how to be a woman from the world around us. You go straight to the Bible and see the depths and riches of it. The Bible loves strong women who value marriage and family but who aren't defined by marriage and family or limited by them.
There's more to come in a moment. Men. Let's talk about men. What do we learn about men? Well, Boaz is presented to us as an extraordinary man. And I want to suggest that in Boaz, we're shown what it is to be a real man. A real man. Now, I'm putting it like that to be somewhat provocative, because can you even talk about men being real men today? Some are saying no. Why? Well, often the reason we don't, our community doesn't want to talk about men being real men and manning up as men is because many people in our community are concerned about the power that men might have. You will have heard of the idea of patriarchy. And there is a concern that the power that men have had has led to terrible abuses and oppression of women. And it's true. Men have abused women badly and need to repent of it but what's driven is this idea that the problem is power itself that men have and there's been an attempt to kind of um, remove the power that men can have remove any distinctions between men and women but here's the thing power is like money it's the love of power that's the problem it's not power itself it's not money itself you look at Boaz, he was a man of power. But there was something inspiring about him. In fact, many women I've talked to say there's something beautiful about Boaz, the man of power. Why? What's beautiful about him? He uses his power at every point for the good of those around him. He never used his power to control or be abusive or proud but he was gracious and generous and protective of the weak there's a beautiful statement there that um, Ruth talks about where she says you have shown kindness to me someone help me find it where is it again um, you have shown kindness to me in the way you've spoken to me where is it verse 10 no. Nice try though. Verse 13. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have standing amongst your servants. Boaz, the man of power, speaks kindly, not patronising, kindly to this woman and put her at ease. That's true masculinity. That is, that's what it is to be a true man to use your power for the good of others which is Jesus of course the great man he was a man of such he is a man of such power there's not anything wrong with power Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth power is not wrong but he's the one who uses his power always to serve who says the greatest, of course, is the slave of all, who protected people by his power. There's a couple of wonderful little episodes in the gospel accounts where uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 36, there's a, a woman who's a notorious sinner who comes repentant before Jesus and in tears and so on, and she's ready to be torn apart by the men, or the men are around her ready to tear her apart, and Jesus stands between them 
and protects the woman with his power against the abuse of others. That's real manhood. There's another episode in John 8 where there's a woman caught in adultery, where the men are all ready to stone and destroy and abuse her. Jesus steps in between them and protects her. Now he doesn't condone their sin. He calls on them to change. But he won't allow men to mistreat women. Men, young men, I want to say to you tonight to man up. Become a man. What is it to become a man? To recognise the strength that you do have. By all kinds of reasons, men, you have strength. Grow in that strength. Man up and learn to have courage with your strength. But learn to use whatever strength you have for the good of others. To love and serve others for their good, not your own. Don't let your strength bleed away. Don't squander it on trivia. Don't squander it on um, um, games and, and other activities that are often the only place to exercise your sense of strength. Don't squander it there. Don't live like a man-child, never growing up. What's a man-child? A man-child is a child in a man's body who thinks life's still about them and their fun. The adolescents live their life as if it's all about me and all about my entertainment and fun, and that can continue on into manhood. That's, that's a man-child. Grow up. Life's not about you and your fun. It's about serving others. Being a man is becoming someone that others can rely on and look to for security and safety, putting them at ease. Can I encourage you men to start making a difference with the circles of influence you've got? Um, start growing in these things. Now, Ruth isn't written to be a man workshop, right? Actually, often it's used in... Um, uh, women conferences and so on very appropriately and wonderfully but I do think it's a book that should be used in a man's conference though it's not written for that Boaz is there to point us to something bigger than just men and their issues Boaz with his power used it to serve the vulnerable to give to Ruth who was socially way down the power letter and Boaz is given to us to see God what God is like you see, Boaz stooped to care for the outcast and the alien, to fill her up. He didn't just do the duty thing. He made an abundant blessing upon this woman and so into Naomi's life. He overflowed with generosity towards her. And in that, this book pictures for us what God is like to us. Because how did Boaz get to be there? Um, you see, uh, as it turned out, was no random act. It wasn't luck. God put Boaz there. God moved Boaz to be abundantly generous to Ruth and then Naomi because God is the God of loving kindness who's determined to show abundant generosity to his people. And so to the final thing tonight, the big thing, God. What do we learn about God? Let me give you a few things. We learn that God is the one who rules the world. As it turned out, verse 3, 
wasn't blind chance. It turned out the way it turned out because God rules all things. Every detail of life, God is sovereign over. Not a bird falls from the sky except God wills it. The big things and the small things, there's no coincidences in life. There's no luck. God makes all that happens happen. What do we learn about God? He's the one who rules. And he's the one that rules as the God of loving kindness. Hesed, who protects and provides for any and all who come in under his wings. How do you come in under his wings? Through repentance and faith. Through recognising the life I've lived outside of God has been wrong, repent of it, turn back to God, come under his lordship and put your trust in him and his grace to us in Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection that makes it possible for us to be forgiven. For all who have repented and put their faith in Jesus, who have come in under the wings of this God, he commits now to love you and fill your life abundantly. And these, as it turns out, moments don't require anything beyond you being a person of repentant faith. It doesn't require you being any more special than a person who simply lives the born-again Christian lifestyle of seeking to obey our Lord, repentant, coming to him for forgiveness. You don't need to do anything more special than that. You know, human instinct says that surely you've got to do more. If God's going to pour out abundant blessing like he did upon Ruth, surely I've got to be like Ruth to deserve it. I mean, Ruth gets rewarded with all of this because she's so extraordinary. Is it the case that I need to be extraordinary before I receive these blessings? No. Notice this. Ruth is blessed abundantly so that Naomi's blessed. And the whole book ends with Naomi being filled up. Naomi, the one who's no hero Christian, who lived in depression and struggled. She was repentant and had her faith under the Lord and saw eventually the goodness of the Lord, but she was no hero. She never earned it. She was simply a repentant, trusting God-fearer. Now, I say this because I want to keep reminding us that if you come under the wings of this Lord, you don't have to be a superstar Christian to know the generous, gracious blessings of God. You have to be in Christ, trusting him, not yourself, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And I say this too to point out that you don't need to do any super spiritual things to get this blessing. What do I mean by that? There's a, in recent decades, there's a whole idea around that says to be, to be in the blessing of God, you need to be in the centre of God's will. How do you get in the centre of God's will? Well, it's the idea that you need to pray for guidance every day and get impressions from God to make sure you make decisions that are the right decisions you know, he wants me to be in this place. I've got to be there to be in the centre of God's will to receive the blessing of God. Just notice this. Ruth had no impressions. She had no word from God. 
She didn't seek guidance beyond the wisdom of getting up and getting a job. There was no sense that she knew God was leading her to that particular field. She didn't experience guidance like that. She just stepped up and stepped out. Ruth put a trust in the God who is sovereign over all things, the God of Hesed, who will guide your... If God, ha... if God wants you to have a divine appointment, you'll have it. Wherever you are, the Lord has put you there. In all the moments of life, he will guide your steps without you even being conscious of it. Trust him. Because the world is not ruled by blind chance. It's not ruled by fate, but by a personal God, the God of Hesed, loving kindness. And any and all who take refuge under his wings, he promises to bless through suffering now, into glory forever. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the astonishing truth that you are a God of loving kindness, who promises to um, work all things together for good for those that do love you, that are called according to your purpose. Thank you that we don't earn this or have to merit this that, that it's for ordinary Christians that we don't have to be super spiritual to gain these kinds of blessings thank you that it comes from you the generous God and think of this book that teaches us so much about life to be lived under the wings of a God who loves us so much amen well let's sing together about that abundant generosity